Apocalypse of Peter is very important to touch on here. So far, we haven't had a detailed tour of hell where you see people being tortured. So far, chronologically speaking, in the history of hell, in, one, in the 130 CE, so far, surviving to us, and we don't have a detailed tour of hell where you see the torture of humanity. You have the idea that humanity in First Enoch ends up in a pit and a fiery place. And likewise, in the Gehenna imagery, where the idea is that humanity that has done wrong will end up in a fiery place like the valley outside of Jerusalem, or the valley of slaughter. But we don't have yet a tour that you get to see the torture of humanity and what sins they've done. That's what you get with the Apocalypse of Peter. The earliest example of a detailed tour of hell where you get to see what happens to individual sinners or rather groups of sinners in the underworld and this is directly related to Dante. Dante has different spheres of hell, doesn't he? Where the gluttons are in this area, the adulterers are in this area, there are certain groups of sinners that are grouped together in different layers of hell. The worse you are, the closer you are down to the frozen butt Satan, right? at the very center of the earth, and then spheres of hell around them. And so there's adultery, gluttony, all the different sins with different spheres. The first time that we encounter this is in the Apocalypse of Peter. This document comes from the 130s CE. Some people thought it would be a good thing to include in the New Testament when they were deciding what to put in it. They ended up including John's Apocalypse, but not Peter's Apocalypse. But this was a candidate for inclusion in the New Testament for some of the people who were deciding that in the 300s CE and after. Here, Peter is the visionary. He's taken to see a blissful place where the righteous will end up. So he's an apocalyptic thinker that has two places that humanity ends up in, right? And then he comes to the one he wants to detail more. He's a bit vague about the wonderful place. And he goes into detail about the place where people are being punished eternally. And that's the language he uses. So it's eternal punishment that's going to go on forever and ever. Here's the first person account. It's an otherworldly journey apocalypse. But I saw also another place opposite that one, the opposite the blissful place where the righteous go. Very gloomy, and this was the place of punishment. And those who were punished there and the angels who punished had dark raiment, clothed according to the air of the place. Now already we have angels punishing humanity here in this vision. I'm not, I would suggest to you these are not fallen angels. It's not Satan that's here. Satan isn't even in hell in the way that this hell is being envisioned. It's God's angels punishing eternally sinners in this hell. There's not much mention of Satan at all in this particular story uh, about a tour of hell. So it's interesting to note that. And some there were hanging by their tongues. There's different camps of sinners now you're going to learn about. They were those who had blasphemed the way of righteousness, and under them was laid fire blazing and tormenting them. You're hanging by your tongue with fire beneath you. This is what is known as the lex talionis. The law of retaliation becomes important in the development of hell, beginning with this first instance of a detailed story about punishment in hell. The law of retaliation is that you will be punished with the thing that you were sinful about. 
your, your punishment will fit your crime. So if you're really an adulterer and that's your favorite sin, we'll find a way to torture you that fits with that. If you're really a blasphemer, we'll hang you by your tongue. Blasphemer is a person that speaks negatively about God. And so this is important in Dante's uh, Inferno and in all uh, subsequent, after Apocalypse of Peter, all subsequent developments of uh, the image of hell right up to our modern notion. Remember that the Simpsons episode was the Lex Talionis. You were a glutton while you lived, Homer. You're now in hell. Well, let's feed you donuts constantly. But then, it, you know, that whole thing backfires in Homer's case. He's a special <laughs> But you got the idea. That's the Lex Talionis. Let me go on further with this so you get the idea of the sort of imagery we get here and how it's, to a modern reader, it's a bit brutal. And there was a great lake full of burning mire in which were fixed certain men who had turned away from righteousness and tormenting angels were placed over them. And there were also others there, women hanging by their hair over that boiling mire. So it's sort of like the lake of fire boiling beneath them, similar to John's apocalypse notion of a lake of fire. These were they who had adorned themselves for adultery. For those men who had united with them for the adulterous defilement were hanging by their feet and had their heads in the mire. So their heads were in that boiling lake there, the men. And, the, and then the women are hanging by their hair. Head in the mire and with loud voice cried out, We did not believe that we would come to this place. Obviously not. And I saw the murderers and their accessories, people who helped them murder, cast into a gorge full of venomous reptiles and tormented by those beasts, and thus writhing in that torture. And worms oppressed them like dark clouds. They're being eaten by worms. The kind that eat you when you die. But the souls of those who had been murdered stood and watched and and the punishment of those murders, and said, O God, righteous is your judgment. So there's this image of hell where there's revenge, where not only is your punishment fitting your crime quite directly, but that those who have been suffered from your sin get to see you tortured. And near that place I saw another gorge in which the discharge and the ex-shit, let's say, because that's what it is, of the tortured ran down and became like a lake. So all the shit from the tortured people is pouring down into a giant lake. And there sat women, and the discharge came up to their throats. So there's people up to their necks in it. And opposite them sat many children who were born prematurely weeping. And from them went forth rays of fire and smote the women on the eyes. So there's little babies with lasers coming out and zapping these women who are in shit up to their necks. And these were those who conceived children out of marriage and procured abortions. So this idea of uh, retaliation here, the babies get to zap you if you do that. right? So that's the, the, the babies are involved in the torture. Starting to get the idea, aren't you? I won't read any more, besides that this is hard for a modern person to read. So that image we saw in the Apocalypse of Peter comes to influence the genre of tours of hell and also influences how punishment in hell is described, including Dante's uh, image that we uh, got. Something that connects Christ and hell and Satan is this journey into the underworld, the story that Jesus, when he was crucified, 
before he came out of the grave, while he was in the underworld, so to speak, when he was in the grave, visited people in the underworld. This notion actually gets built right into Christian doctrine. I didn't ever have to say it when I grew up because I went to a Baptist church, but those of you who go to an Anglican church or a Catholic church have, is it the Apostolic Creed or is it the Nicene Creed that talks about Christ's descent into hell to preach to, to the dead? So the, this, this has a very early history. It's already evident in the first century CE in 1 Peter. Description of this idea that when Jesus was dead on the cross, put into the grave, that while he was in the grave, it's the equivalent of being in the underworld, and he made a journey to preach to the people in the grave. This is a, in the context of 1 Peter. We can't go much into 1 Peter. It's the end of the first century. This is written by an author who claims to be the Apostle Peter. And here he's talking about the suffering that Christians in Asia Minor are facing, this sort of social ostracization and, and uh, social uh, sort of persecution that they're facing. And he's trying to build them up and say, you can suffer like Christ suffered. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. He's going to go on to this whole thing about this as an analogy for a baptism, right? But this little reference here that is what we're talking about, that he was put to death and he visited and proclaimed to those who were spirits in prison, who in former times were killed during the flood. The sinners in prison. He went and proclaimed to them something. That's all we get in First Peter. But what we get in subsequent decades and centuries is the development of the harrowing of hell, is also the name for it, of Christ's descent into hell, is developed further and further. In the 4th century, in the uh, writing you have, the Gospel of Nicodemus or the Acts of Pilate, it has a section where it goes into detail about this Christ's uh, descent into hell. What's interesting about that is it's sort of a full-blown story linked to this early development of the idea that Christ went down into the underworld. Here, there are two figures in the Gospel of Nicodemus. There's Hades and there's Satan. And they're both talking together in the underworld. And Satan's sharing with Hades, you know what, I just recently had some success, I got this Jesus guy killed. What you need to do, Hades, since you're the god of the dead, this is a Christian uh, writing here that, that has these two figures talking to one another, that since you're god of the dead, is really grab onto this guy and hold him in the grave. He's a pretty powerful guy. I've got him killed for you. Now you hold him, Hades, Satan says to Hades. So there's two personified evil figures, you could say, in this particular writing. And so they make this whole plan of uh, trying to hold Christ in the grave, in the realm of Hades. It fails, right? Basically. And what Christ does is he comes down and starts preaching to the people in the, in the grave. His father Abraham, our father Abraham, the ancestor Abraham, is there in the grave, along with the patriarchs and the prophets. And he preaches, preaches to them, and they're just overjoyed at what's happening. 
he sees John the Baptist in the grave. These people aren't in heaven, right? So in this author's conception, they're still in the grave, and there's a future point at which, at this point, uh, when, when they get to be taken somewhere else. Adam is there, and Adam has this, and, and Seth, his son, is there, the ones you read about in uh, the life of Adam and Eve. They say to one another, remember that whole promise of the oil, the oil of mercy? Well, this might be it. This might be the time. And so the Adam and Eve story that you guys read sort of gets built into the, as a background to this particular story. So Adam and Seth are now seeing that this might be the time. He's going to be anointed with oil, the oil that had been promised Adam back, in the, back when he died, when he made that last testament in the life of Adam and Eve. So Satan and Hades here having a conversation. Hades is hesitant, and he sort of gives the implication that you have this plan to hold this guy. I'm not so sure it's going to work. And Satan is a little bit more of a, a naive and thinking, oh, we can do it. We can do it, Hades. Come on. You can do it. We have a common enemy. We can hold this guy and keep him here. Hades says, well, remember that Lazarus guy? Gospel of John that referred to. Well, I recently had in my stomach Lazarus, he says, but he, I had to throw him up and give him back. I heard that Jesus had something to do with that. I'm not so sure I can hold Jesus, Hades says to, to Satan. And he's worried about losing everything. I'm going to lose all my bodies that I've got here in my realm, Hades says, if things go wrong. That's a bit of a premonition. And then a voice comes where Jesus is leading the people that he's just talked to in the underworld out. Again, the voice sounded, lift up the gates. When Hades heard the voice, the gates of Hades, when Hades heard the voice the second time, he answered as if he did not know it and said, he quotes the Bible, who is this king of glory? The angels of the Lord said, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Psalms, it's from. And immediately at this answer, the gates of brass were broken in pieces and the bars of iron were crushed and all the dead who were bound were loosed from their chains and we with them. And the king of glory entered in like a man, and all the dark places of Hades were illuminated. Everything's lit, lit up, the opposite of what Hades should be. Hades at once cried out, we are defeated, woe to us. Then the king of glory seized the chief ruler Satan by the head and handed him over to the angels, saying, bind with iron fetters his hands and his feet and his neck and his mouth. Then he gave him to Hades and said, Take him and hold him fast until my second coming. So this is a slightly different version of it, but the idea of Satan being chained by Hades here in the grave until the second coming of Christ when he will be, you know, put out of business permanently. So this idea of Christ triumphs over Satan in part through the resurrection, through coming out of the grave and bringing out with him those who are trapped in the grave at least the, the righteous from of old, like the righteous of the Hebrew Bible.